Okay, good morning everyone. Welcome back to our study of Proverbs. We'll be picking up in chapter 22 here momentarily. But first a word from our sponsor. Not exactly, but two things to draw your attention to. And uh, they're somewhat connected, even if tenuously. The first is, I, I was uh, held good to my promise. Um, you'll receive this if you haven't already. It's a little handout. Get this in the divine service. Corporate Lenten Fast Faith Lutheran Church. So, again, I make the biblical case in a very short amount of space here, if I don't say so myself, for why you want to fast, not least of which because all of the Old Testament people fasted, all of the New Testament people fasted, and Jesus in many points says, when they fast or then they will fast in regard to his disciples. The church in the book of Acts we see is fasting. The church fasted all the way up until somehow, somewhere, we, along the Lutheran branch of things, lost it. Of course, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, some Anglicans, and perhaps even others continue to fast this day. So we're returning ourselves back to the fold by way of corporate fast. You can look through all the details of this at your own The bottom line is the corporate fast, should you choose to join. And of course, we don't fast to merit the forgiveness of sins. We don't fast to make ourselves look better than other people. We don't fast so that it's seen by other people. And breaking the fast doesn't mean we're sinning. Not participating doesn't mean we're sinning. Okay, so with all those caveats out of the way... Uh, Wednesdays and Fridays, just take your evening meal and fast throughout those days. The fasting on Wednesdays and Fridays is about as old as it gets. First century document, Christians have fasted on Wednesday and Friday from the first century forward. Okay, so I want to bring that to your attention, should you choose to join us. And maybe, uh, maybe just one other, no, I already mentioned that, I think. Okay, and then this is convenient. Because if you start your fast on on Ash Wednesday, which you should, then you'll come in the evening for soup supper and break your fast with the people of God. So soup supper, we uh, have a few sign-ups available for setup, for soup, and for bread. Dessert also. So let me, let me pass this around, and if you have any interest in bringing a soup for all to share. I mean, what a, what a great way of enhancing your discipline if on your fast you're preparing the soup. That will be opportunity for prayer. So, you've got to taste it. <laughs> all of a sudden we've instantly devolved into Phariseeism. How much, how much is a taste? <laughs> Uh, too funny. Okay, I'll pass this around and, and we'll get started. So, okay. And if you want to just pass that behind you, yeah. Okay, with that out of the way, we'll jump back into Proverbs 22. And we're going to be relying on the study notes perhaps a little more heavily than weeks past, simply because I think they put a couple of things uh, in good perspective quote from Steinman here to just give us the framing because what's begun here is a different section altogether. So chapter 22 verse 17 is the start of the words of wise people, not original to Solomon, though certainly curated by him and adapted by him. 
We'll talk about that more right after our invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. (coughs) Trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so chapter 22, verse 17, incline your ear and hear the words of the wise. Who are these words of the wise? Now, for a long time in the New Testament history of the church, it was assumed that this was just a collection of maybe many random sayings from many different people. Take a look at the study note in your Lutheran service book, down at the bottom, that first column, chapter 22, 17 through 23, 14. Since the wisdom of Amenem... I'm not going to be able to say this. Let me see. Amenemenope. (laughs) That's not wrong at all. I look at it, I have it. I look away, I don't have it. Okay, well... Yes, in the wisdom of A. Okay, this document was discovered in Egypt in 1922... Scholars have noted a number of parallels between amenem, nope, saying, and these verses of uh, Proverbs. More recently, it has become clear that A's work was written at least a century before Solomon lived. This would imply that Solomon borrowed from the Egyptian rather than the other way around. Now, who knows? I mean, is this all scholarly speculation? Sure it is. Okay, so take it or leave it. And these kinds of things, to tell you the truth, I take with a grain of salt because a hundred years later, there's some other remarkable discovery and it's all different. Okay, take it for what it's worth. Moreover, Solomon seems to have structured 22, uh, 17 through 24, 22 into 30 sayings. Ahad structured his work with 30 divisions. That itself is a little bit dubious, but whatever. Does this mean that this portion of Holy Scripture is but a copy of pagan Egyptian thought? Not at all. Solomon did not slavishly copy the wisdom of A. In fact, only 22 of the 63 verses have any parallel with a statement found in A, and all are to be found in the first section of the 30 sayings. Even the thoughts Solomon quoted have been altered significantly. Solomon had urged his readers to learn from other wise people. Okay, so that just gives you a little history of what's been speculated since the early 20th century when this Egyptian document was found, that there is some significant overlap. I think it's great, and though the note doesn't point it out, one of the reasons that I think it's great, and I highlighted this last week, highlighted again quickly here, is that the natural world is the revelation of God. And the natural law is really an expression of how God designed the world. So it's self-evident that, for example, marriage is between man and a woman because that's the only way you can produce offspring. So the design and the law are like two sides of the same coin. The order of creation and what we call the natural law are reflective 
of one another. They're symmetrical. Okay, so pagans who have a conscience can understand to one degree or another the natural law and can put forward wisdom on the basis of that natural law. That's why you can go on YouTube or listen to a podcast and you don't have to think, is this person a Christian or not? And and thus, am I going to benefit at all? Wisdom can come from all kinds of sources. What's unique to the scriptures, of course, is that here is, at its core, the wisdom of salvation and the revelation of Christ, which you're not going to get in nature. But expanding from that point, you have the wisdom of God per se. You have the wisdom of God explicitly penned out through many hundreds of pages, thousands of pages of scripture. Which then also functions that as you might reflect on the natural world, the order of creation, the natural law, and come to certain conclusions, if those conclusions are in contradiction to the scriptures, you can be certain that they are in error. So the scriptures have this expansive function in revealing to us the truth of what's set forward, um, even according to the natural revelation. Okay, then as the study note points out, he's taken these, he's amended them, he's curated them, and he's set them forward for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So these are no less scripture than any of the other Proverbs. All right, any thoughts, any questions? Okay. All right, we'll return to this at one point here in a couple of verses, a few verses. Otherwise, let's jump in. At verse 17, incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your heart to my knowledge. For it will be pleasant if you keep them within you, if all of them are ready on your lips. Some really visceral language hidden here. It will be pleasant if you keep them literally within your belly, if all of them are ready on your lips. There's this great collect that we might hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the Word of God. So the idea that it's really riffing on what our Lord says when he says, take care how you hear. So we have a very strong doctrine of the Word and a very strong doctrine of monergism. God works through the Word. He takes resisting people and makes them, transforms them through the word into agreeable people. That is all true, but if done in a one-sided manner, it can leave us with a sense that our role is just pure passivity. And any activity on our part, especially when it comes to the word, would be somehow contrary to the scriptures. What's the problem with that? The problem with that is Jesus. Jesus himself says, take care how you hear. And he even tells a parallel, a parable that illustrates this very point of taking care how you hear. Do you know the parable? The sower with the seed. Because there are four different kinds of soil. And I'm sorry if this, I'm sorry, not sorry, that this hurts modern Lutheran feelings. It doesn't hurt the old Lutheran feelings at all. The soil are people. That's what Jesus himself says. They are the ones who receive the word and 
it falls, as it were, on a heart as hard as a path, bounces up, and the birds are on it, the devil swoops it away. There are other people who, when they hear the word, it take, they receive it with joy, it takes root for a time. As soon as any persecution, trouble, or difficulty comes, they wither and die because they have no root within themselves. These are they who, the first category, who receive the seed. The first category of the path, they don't receive it. It just bounces right off them. The devil swoops it up. He's happy to. The second and the third are those who receive the seed and something begins to happen, if only for a time. So that which is amongst the rocks is received and begins to grow, but on account of the suffering or persecution or sunshine that comes, they wither and die. The second group is sown amongst the weeds, and the weeds grow up and choke it. So again, there are those who receive the word of God, believe in it for a while, Jesus says. Those are his explicit words. And then fall away. What is begun in them does not make it to fruitfulness. Think like a farmer for a minute. Are you just happy that there's green coming up out of the earth? No. (laughs) You want grain. You want the full maturity so that there's grain, so that there's fruitfulness. Anything short of that was still a waste of time. So these believe for a little while and then fall away on account of the cares and riches and pleasures of this life. The cares there is specifically the language of worry. That's where that word most frequently comes up. Um, an, an example of that word worry, and to some degree a parallel, is um, uh, Martha, Martha, you are worried about many things. Okay, so her worry, her cares for what's going on, in that sense, take her away from the word of the Lord and cause her to look askance at Mary, who is listening devoutly. Okay, and then the fourth kind of soil is good soil, those who receive the word and hold it fast. And that hold it fast is active language. Hold it fast. Why? Because it's going to be tried to snatch away from you, or choked out, or baked out. So hold it fast in a good and honest heart. And that's exactly what good soil is. A good and honest heart is a heart that confesses its sins and receives Christ as its Savior, confesses its foolishness, and receives the wisdom of Christ as pure gift. That's a good and honest heart. So then Jesus' point is, take care how you hear. And I'm sorry, 20th century Lutheranism, that is exactly the point of the parable, is to reflect on the kind of soil you would be. And to then, going back to the collect, receive the word of God, not expecting it's just going to, you know, if I show up at church and sit there on Sunday, the word's being preached, being like osmosis, it's just going to end up in my heart. I mean, it's one step away from trying to learn anything by going like this. It doesn't happen. You have to take it in and remember it and chew on it, as it were, release the flavors and the texture, take it in, taste and see that the Lord is good, swallow it, and even once you've swallowed it, you still need to digest it. And what happens in digestion? Of course, we think of the excretion, but that's not in view. You are what you eat. And so the digestion is this thing becomes 
part of you. It becomes one with you, and the task of hearing isn't done until that teaching has become one with you. I won't bore you with systematizing all of that, but it's one thing to know the word. It's another thing to know the sense of that word, what it is and what it isn't. And it's yet a third thing to understand where that word comes from and be able to replicate that thought pattern yourself. Three different levels of mastery to hearing the word of God. You look at the scriptures. You can say, okay, I know that St. Paul says X. I can argue, I can see within context why he's saying X and not Y, X and not Z. Can you yet get to the stage where you say, I know exactly why he's saying that and why it's the right thing to say and how to say it that very same truth in many other applications in many other circumstances. That's starting to have the mind of Christ deeply within you to where you're thinking in the same way that Christ and his apostles are thinking. You can actually produce in the way that they produce. But that all has to come through the inner eating, swallowing, digestion, becoming God's word. So when we hear at Christmas time, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We are members of his body. In us, the word continues to become flesh. The word continues to write itself into us ever more deeply as we are conformed into the image of Christ, as we ever more deeply and truly are his body. Okay, so all of that masterfully summarized in our Lord's words, take care how you hear. When you go to church, when you read your devotion or whatever the case may be in your daily life, you don't want to just say, well, that's it. You want to think on these things, meditate on these things, see the world through these things, discover why these things and your perception of the world are in disagreement and figure out why that is. That's the true joy of being a disciple, the true joy of being, a, being good soil, holding on firmly to that word of God and not letting it go until it grows and until it produces fruit, even a hundredfold. Okay, so very visceral language then here in 18, for it will be pleasant if you keep them within your belly. What is that? The words of the wise. Incline your ear means listen up, and listening is actively. You know, hearing isn't. Every parent knows this. Did you hear me? Yes, I heard you. Why did you not do it? Because you weren't listening. (laughs) There's a great difference between hearing and listening. So incline your ear is don't just hear Listen, hear the words of the wise, apply, look at the active language, and apply your heart to my knowledge. What does that indicate? That the heart by nature is contrary to or other than the knowledge, the wisdom. So to apply your heart is the process of understanding and conformity. 
Again, we recognize when we hear the wisdom of the scriptures to be certain, it often strikes us as foolishness or it often strikes us as unrealistic. Be faithful to that word of God in this economy? (laughs) That's how it strikes us. So to apply our hearts is to see in the first place that our hearts are far from it. And then to lean in and grasp onto it, to receive it in such a way that um, we keep it within our belly and then um, they're ready upon our lips. There's a beautiful picture of this in Holy Communion, of course. You receive Christ upon your lips and he comes and dwells within you. And having received Christ upon your lips as you go out into the world, what's there upon your lips but Christ? There's this kind of same idea with the word that enters your ears, goes into your heart. That's the kind of Western way. Goes into your belly. It's kind of the more Middle Eastern way. Goes into your belly. And then when you speak, that's what comes back out, is what you've received with your ear and is in your belly. That's what comes out. So out of the mouth of a man comes the abundance of the heart. So here's the admonition to fill one's heart with the word and wisdom of God so that when one speaks, that's there. Okay, a nice way of starting us out here. Just a wonderful meditation on what it is um, to pursue the path of wisdom with Solomon and later on explicit in the discipleship of Jesus to listen to his word and receive it as good soil that through patient endurance bears fruit because spiritual gifts take a long time to receive. Okay, 19, that your trust may be in the Lord. I have made them known to you today, even to you. So another wonderful statement because the purpose clause is that your trust may be in the Lord. So why has Solomon made known these words of the wise unto you for the purpose that your trust may be in the Lord? So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's been the thesis of Proverbs all the way through. And here's a statement very much like it. All of this stuff is to have the effect, all of these Proverbs are to have the effect that you trust and trust ever more fully in the Lord. Of course, what would be the contrast to that? Lean not on your own understanding. I mean, this goes really deep, doesn't it? Because that goes, it goes all the way back to Eden. I won't belabor the point. Don't eat of it, and the day you eat of it, you shall surely die, says the Lord. What does she see with her eyes? Pleasing to the eye and good for food. Trust in the Lord and lead, lean not on your own understanding. What's the antithesis of that? The Lord's Supper. This thing that looks like death, looks like cannibalism, looks like the ugliest thing you can fathom and the last thing that would make sense for you to eat or to drink. God says, eat and drink all of you for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Trust in the Lord and lean not on your own understanding. Now that's thoroughgoing because as you read the word of God and as you hear the word of God preached from faithful pastors, you're going to go, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, that's wrong. 
patience, <laughs> recognize that your heart, like my heart, is by nature sinful and turned away from the truth of God. And so we want to trust what he says in the first place and lean not on our own understanding, or as Augustine puts it, believe first, then you will understand. Not going to understand, you're not going to like it, it's not going to be rational, it's not going to make sense to you, it's not going to accord with your experience. Too bad. That's exactly the point. Trust in it that it is true, and in due time, God will reveal to you how off base you were and how right He was and is. Okay, so a beautiful invitation then and a beautiful thesis here that your trust may be in the Lord, I have made them known to you today, even to you. Have I not written for you 30 sayings? Okay, drop down to the study note. That's what I was mentioning before class began. A spelling variance in the Hebrew has confused translators over the centuries. Some see the words as a reference to the repetition or excellence. However, as A had been written or had written a book with 30 chapter or yeah with 30 chapters of proverbs Solomon may have liked the idea of collecting 30 sayings here he used some of A's ideas but he also incorporated the sayings of other wise people and has reworked these sayings to apply to the Israelites all right fair enough so that's, that's about the best I'm going to do with the 30 sayings. You can tell it's something that over the centuries has, the meaning, which is clear and of itself, has sort of been lost among us and is speculated that now it connects with this document by the author A. Okay, have I not written for you 30 sayings of counsel and knowledge to make you know what is right and true? So again, the implication is that we don't by nature know what is right and true. Otherwise, we, if we did, we wouldn't need any wisdom. So by nature, we don't know what is right, and we don't know what is true. Thus, he gives us this counsel and knowledge that you may give a true answer to those who sent you. So have I not written for you 30 sayings of counsel and knowledge to make you know what is right and true, that you may give a true answer for those who sent you? So... Some uh, poetry, poetic element going on here. But this then is exactly parallel with 17 and 18. So you have kind of a highlighting of verse 19 between these two parallels, 17 and 18, and then 20 and 21. Not only that you would know what is right and true, but then that you may give answer, that you may speak to those who sent you. So again, not only that you would receive the wisdom, but then you would be able to speak the wisdom unto others. Same as 17 and 18. Okay, and then here we go into them. Do not rob the poor because he is poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate, for the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. So the abuse of the poor, of course, is rampant in our age, and when you look at the elite and you look at the rich, and, and, and here I'm talking about the exceptionally rich, you're talking about people who care nothing for the poor and think that the poor are there for them to exploit. And here's a warning. Don't join in them. Uh, don't join in with them because God will rob the life of those who rob the poor. He will 
mistreat those who mistreat the poor, etc. So, um, do not rob the poor because he is poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate, for the Lord will plead their cause. Um, remember the rich man and Lazarus? And so God has his means of writing those scales. The rich man, whose name we don't even know because he's forgotten, goes down to hell. And Lazarus, whose name we remember, was poor, afflicted at the gate, crushed at the gate, as brought up into heaven at the, at the bosom, at the right-hand side of Father Abraham. When the rich man who did not know God, did not fear God, thus mistreated and robbed and abused and afflicted the poor, when he asks for even a drop of cold water to be placed upon his tongue, Abraham's response is telling You've already received your good stuff. Don't expect any more. So that is a, a very poignant reflection or connection maybe between this uh, proverb and our Lord's own preaching. Okay, 24. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways. And entangle yourself in a snare. So bad company corrupts good morals, certainly. But one who is given to anger is going to be given to impulsivity. We've covered this in some other proverbs. And impulsivity leads one into bad situations. So depart. Maybe this is especially for younger people. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways, lest his anger become your anger and his impulsivity, your impulsivity, and entangle yourself in a snare. Okay, 26. Be not one of those who give pledges. Oh, you know, we, I guess we have to say this. Is this sinful to be angry? Yeah, if God can be angry, it's not sinful to be angry. I am so happy. I saw so many like faces saying the right thing. It's just that's remarkable, wonderful. Yeah, anger is not a sin um, as long as it's righteous anger, as long as it's anger that's just, and as long as it's an anger that ultimately doesn't take vengeance but hands vengeance over to the Lord. Yes, sir. I think we even have a very clear verse for that. In your anger, do not sin. It, it presumes that you will be angry. Absolutely. Fantastic text to draw upon. Yeah, I don't know where it got popular <clears throat> to say that anger itself is a sin, or to play, pay lip service to the scriptures. And say, oh, you know, yeah. In theory, it's not a sin, but <laughs> anybody who's angry is actually sinning. Uh, no, I mean, we want to be on guard. Of course, our Lord preaches uh, um, about anger in the heart in a very serious way in the Sermon on the Mount right up front. So I, we shouldn't take it lightly or glibly. But yeah, just categorically, we need to allow ourselves. It's like if you're not angry, there's something wrong with you. That's really a lot of what's going on in our world, too, is we don't, we don't have men who are men or men who are men enough to be angry. And angry isn't nice. And the biggest proof that we live in a feminized society, one of the biggest proofs that we live in a feminized society is because the golden rule is being nice. 
And any man who acts like a man or gets angry because anger is exactly what's necessary is immediately chastised by women and has to fight through all the women to actually get to the business that he needs to get to. That's the nature of our... Sorry, guys, I'll say it. I'll take the heat. I know you know it in your heart. I'll just say it out loud for you. Okay. So, yeah, the whole point, though, here is uh, anger, impulsivity, stay away from it. Um, that's That's the angle that's being taken here. 26, be not one of those who give pledges, who put up security for debts. Don't sign off on somebody else's credit card. Somebody else's car loan. <laughs> I think it, um, a lot of this is don't entrust yourself to man. Entrust yourself to the Lord. I think both these two proverbs that we've just covered uh, just redound back to 19, the thesis. Trust in the Lord, not in man. Don't trust this guy who's angry and wrathful. And obviously, because you're angry and wrathful and aggressive, you get a lot of what you want. And you go, ooh, I want to have what I want, too. I'm going to follow this guy. I'm going to trust my path to this guy. Bad move. And same here. Um, don't entrust yourself to somebody who says, oh, yeah, I promise I'll pay you back. No problem. Here's the... Be not one of those who gives pledges, who put up security for debts. 26, does it, is this the the cloak yeah 27 ties in 27 is um goes right along with 26 if you have nothing with which to pay why should your bed be taken from under you so look at 26 and 27 i mean of course more broadly these are just like don't borrow what you can't repay don't engage in usury i mean more broadly that's what these mean of course 27, the study note says this, God's law did not permit people's cloaks, which doubles at, which doubled as bedliners, to be held overnight as collateral. However, not everyone would operate ethically. It would not be wise to put oneself at the mercy of unscrupulous lenders. Right. So whether for yourself or for your neighbor, um, don't put yourself at the mercy of others. Don't trust others. Okay, 28, again, we're going to refer to the footnote since we don't really use ancient landmarks the same way. Do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. Just looking at the study note, there were no title deeds or surveyor's equipment in common usage in ancient Israel. Property boundaries were marked by stones. A dishonest neighbor could stealthily move the landmark farther and farther into his neighbor's property (laughs) stealing farm ground that was the basis of their existence such dishonesty would be hard to prove in court and of course your fathers have set some rabbis later viewed such passages as referring to respect for traditions not just the landmarks yeah but who cares what rabbis think no, I'm just joking. I think it's kind of true. Uh, rabbis, by and large, are people who reject Jesus. Why would I care what they think? Seriously. So, yeah, do not move the ancient landmark. Seems to be, um, do not cheat in a way that you think you're not going to get caught. Why? Again, because the Lord is 
watching, trust the Lord that he will provide enough for you and your family. Don't go scheming and scamming and fall afoul of him because you don't trust him to provide. Maybe that would be a good way of wrapping that up. Okay, 29. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. I I mean, it's observationally kind of true. But I think also it, it reads like, become skillful in your work. Especially because, oh man. When you hire a contractor or someone to do something around the home or the yard, does it usually turn out okay? Eh. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Pretty good chance you're going to have to call them back to do something. Pretty good chance that even after they're gone, you're going to discover their incompetency for years. Have your house painted and get up on a ladder and go, oh. <laughs> so uh, we live in an absolutely wicked culture in this respect, where it's like, what's the bare minimum I can do and the bare maximum I can get? What God would have us do is lean into the skill with which we do things. And to really, I mean, maybe this is a call. No, I don't think so. I think it's a call, especially to men outside of the home in whatever. Of course, you just see how cheapened it is. But, I mean, if you, if you are a, uh, one of those guys that works at Home Depot, and I'm stealing this from, uh, I think, Jocko Willink, be the best Home Depot guy you can possibly be. Know everything there is to know. Have your entire aisle or aisles the most organized in the entire store. Research and know every single item in that department so that when someone like me comes and asks you some foolish question, you can answer and (laughs) help me not further destroy my house. So be the best you can be where the Lord has put you. And that's also a secret to happiness because you may not like where the Lord has put you. Even just for a season in your life or for whatever, you may say, hey, this is all there is. I'm not gonna, I, I'm, this is beneath me. I'm not going to do my best. The scriptural wisdom would be like, absolutely it isn't beneath you. And absolutely you should do your best and you'll actually find great joy, great satisfaction. And then the other thing is when you're in this hypothetical circumstance where um, maybe you once had a a high paying job and and now you've lost that job in such a way that Home Depot is the only option. As you're working with skill and excellency, who takes notice? God certainly does. And that's wonderful in itself. I mean, I could just stop there. But who also takes notice eventually is the manager. And as you expand into whatever role you're given next, who also takes notice? And who also takes notice? And so on. And so it's, a, it's obviously just an application of the principle, even if it's not so glorious, as standing before kings, not standing before obscure men, that when you do something with all your strength and you do something in a way that I want to master this, I want this to be a skill of mine. Then, then people take notice and they want to give you more. And they want you to expand into that role also. Okay, so obviously the counterbalance is that endless ambition is a disease. Be content with what you have, but expand into what you have and seek excellence. And I think that that is needed 
I mean, think of what a priceless gift you do to somebody if you just do a good job. If they don't have to call you back, or if they do call you back, you have an answer for why it's the way it is. Just do a good job, and you will stand out as what you are in the world, salt and light. We're not living in in terribly difficult times, really. I mean, our, (laughs) our enemies are fat, lazy, confused about their gender, and will cry if rebuked. Our task laid ahead is do a good job at something, anything. <laughs> you will make yourself stand out from the world like a light shining in the darkness. I mean, the, the evil of our days is, and that, that way is lessened by the fact that the good is so simple to do. Do something, anything, and you're going to stand out. So that's what I mean by we don't live in terribly difficult days. Here then is a great launch pad into our immoral modern world. Um, to aspire to be skillful. Now, hu- now, wives, um, you know, husbands are out of the house by and large. Wives inside the house, same thing. Same. Th- the world has taught wives that w- housework is demeaning. God sees it entirely differently. One, so you're going to believe the world. You're going to believe the girl bosses who are fifty years old, fifty years old with everything in the world they could want except for anyone to love them. You're going to listen to them or you're going to listen to God. And the work that is the most fulfilling that God designs women to do is to love husbands and love children. I'm quoting scripture. You can't get mad at me. But that work is priceless and precious. And a skilled woman empowers a man to be skilled and and full-throated and full-powered in whatever his vocation outside of the home is. And is skilled at nurturing the children so that they get launched from the household like arrows into the heart of the devil, into the heart of the evil world. That's also scripture. That's the children are arrows launched out into the world um, by their father. So um, the glue that holds that together is in the feminist eyes something inglorious, but in God's eyes is something absolutely essential and wonderful. You know, the man brings home money and the wife transforms that money into something delicious and nutritious and wonderful. Transforms a, a table that's just bare, the roof over it, into a home and into a place of uh, psychological and physical recovery and healing. That's why we call it comfort food, right? That's why it feels good to eat. That's why, you know, you, it feels good to be around family when you're eating. These things are baked into us. They're baked into creation. And women have all of this to do to to flourish it and make it wonderful, to nest and decorate and make the house a a fantastic place. I mean, what that really is, is akin to, it's parallel to, do you know how Adam was given to tend the garden and beautify it? That's a, that, there's a parallel to that with women in the home tending to the garden of that home and trying to turn that garden that, into a refuge, into a sanctuary, into a miniature Eden to which everyone can come and be refreshed and then depart into the brutalities of the world and conquer knowing there's a place to come home and lick your wounds and receive some good food and some... So, it's just that's how God sees motherhood. That's how God's and, and you know, just invaluable. And how we've gotten stripped from this. To, no, it'd be much better for you to go enslave yourself to some other man who doesn't care about you, will fire you on the spot. Um, 
and far more fulfilling than loving your husband or wife or anything else is to go do some emails. Or to get a job at Home Depot. I, who bewitched us? <laughs> who bewitched us? Who, who stole? Well, and we know how it was stolen from. It was stolen like, hey, two worker income is going to double your financial power. It's going to double your leisure. The promise of mammon. But what happened along with that? Wages stagnated, costs kept going up. And now it's virtually, so understand me, I'm not condemning. I'm just mourning and lamenting the brokenness with you all. Now it's where you almost have to have two incomes to survive. And you're going to make sacrifices. and Maybe you won't even be able to. But at bare minimum, you're going to have to make sacrifices if you just have one person working. So these are, what I'm really trying to do is not shame anyone here, but I'm trying to show the world's ideals and God's ideals and how different they are. And to show um, everything that the world hates and despises and denigrates, surprise, surprise, God lifts up and glories and honors, and it happens to be, whether we recognize it or not, the most important work, period. You know, a man's value isn't where he goes on the hierarchical scale of jobs. A man's value is the skill with which he engages that task, the skill that he develops within that task. That's his, within that role, that's his value. And um, it's just an entirely different way of viewing the world outside the home and inside the home. What pleases God? How God designed things? What is of true worth? When you, are, when you um, girl boss, are, are dying in the hospital bed, you're not going to go, oh, if only I could have sold a few more widgets. Oh, if only I could have sent a few more emails with corporate jargon. On your deathbed, you look back and you look at family. You look at God, you look at church, you look at family, you look at the quality of life, you look at the hours and time you spend with your family, you look at what you said and what you did, where there's regret, and there is for all of us, you commend it in the hands of Christ. But I'm telling you right now, when you're, on, when you're in your last years, the winter years of your life, so to speak, when you're laying in what may well be your deathbed, the girl boss stuff is worthless. And the and a life spent in futility thinking, well, I'm just a drone, so who cares? And I don't get paid enough for what I do, so I'm going to do a crappy job because I get paid crappy. Like that, that kind of reflection and emptiness on the end of your life is, what did you do? I was bitter the whole time and did the bare minimum because I was given the bare minimum. Great. How about if you really reflected rather and said, I'm thankful for the circumstances that God afforded me, and within those, I'm happy that I poured myself into it. I'm happy that I was able to serve others in this vocation. Did I do it perfectly? No, thanks be to Christ who did his vocation for me perfectly. But there is nothing wrong in the least with being at the end of your life and saying, I laid it on the line. I was, I'm exhausted. I'm spent. I poured myself out like a drink offering. You even hear some of that language in St. Paul, like I've done it, I've fought the fight. And Paul would be the first of all to say, not perfectly. 
<laughs> Christ covers my sins, but I did it. I fought the fight. I ran the race. And I'm poured out like a drink offering, and I feel good about that. See, live life, I'm on a little bit of a sermon here, but, li- but live life from the deathbed. Don't live life the way the world tells you. It's, you're never going to die. So go be a girl boss. You deserve better. Go do the worst you can do um, and, and get paid what you can get paid. Just transfer back and forth and work your way up the ladder. Just that there's nothing that you're going to look back on in life and say that was worth it. So live in such a way that when you're on your deathbed, you're going to say that was worth it and that was worth it and that was worth it. And I'm not afraid, I'm not sad in the least that I poured my hours into this, that, or the other. Okay, hopefully that makes sense. I see somebody trying to get in. A couple of things. Once you uh, mentioned the bitterness, being bitter is exhausting. Yeah. So yes, there's, there's, there's different ways, but it sure is, uh, you know, easy to fall into. Um, no, I just wanted to say, um, you know, we're talking about how our society and, you know, feminism has taken away the, uh, I guess, the, uh, the shininess of, of being a, a homemaker, so to speak. I think some of that, uh, you know, as men, we have to acknowledge that we need to be a part of that and show the respect of, 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 of a home homemaker, home provider, the, uh, put them on the pedestal of being of, you know, their CEO of family incorporated. Right. Yeah. And yeah. we need to acknowledge that and not just dismiss it or just say, Oh, that's just domestic work or however you want to do it. That's, you know, it's so valuable, not just the financial things and organizational things, but as you say, you're building a life, building a family and you're building a legacy. You know, if you have kids, that's going to extend much further. So I think, especially as men, we need to hold our spouses up on a pedestal and say, holy cow, you do way more than I do. Absolutely. Yeah. Gratitude and encouragement. And, um, you know, I don't always do this myself to the, when the meal maybe just isn't quite to your taste, still smile and eat it. (laughs) The children are watching. Well, it also goes too. you just, you know, you have to, you know, you got to look at, this is a team sport. Yeah, exactly. You know, this is teamwork here. Yeah, this is the exactly. this is the team endeavor. So it's not just that's your that's your stuff. This is my stuff. It's our stuff. You know. So we need to be absolutely, you know, as they say, evenly yoked. Hopefully, or something. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're yoked for sure. Whether it's even or not, it's not always going to be even. It's never going to be even. You know, sometimes one's pulling a lot and the other one's dragging you behind. Right, and vice versa. Right, so, but it's a, it's a team sport. Yeah, I mean, your your wife. This is a kind of a husband centric view, of course, but your wife is simultaneously your greatest treasure. And that which manages all your other greatest treasures. Act accordingly. <laughs> yeah, and that, and you're flourishing each other. And of course, just as the woman um, works outside from time to time, even though that's not her primary vocation, the man works inside the home from time to time. And that's not his. You know, I'm I'm not one of these that says the second the man gets home, he's just off duty. I don't think that that's very. Uh, I think that's a great expression of masculinity. I mean, there should be a division of roles and everything. But exactly to the spirit of your point, we want to encourage, husbands, encourage your wives. Love them as Christ loves the church. Realize that if you are undercutting your wife, you're undercutting the most important thing to you. Which, again, going back to the deathbed reflections, my wife, my kids, my family, my church, those are the things you reflect on. Um, if you have them to reflect on. Hopefully you do. So, yeah, conduct yourself accordingly. Yes, sir, please. 
So I think one other aspect of that uh, pursuing a skillfulness in your work is also sort of an antidote to the pattern we have today of going to work for some brand and do whatever they say and put up whatever, with whatever ungodly decisions mm-hmm. and uh, policies they may have. So if I'm going to work and I'm working as unto the Lord, working with skill because the task I'm doing has inherent value, I may do it for a godless employer, but I'm doing it for the sake of that task, right? For the skill that I have in doing that. Yes. And, and that also flavors the way I manage my career then. Yes, Mr. Employer, I'm doing this at your behest here, but I'm really doing this. And I can go do that elsewhere as well. Great point. Great point. So, yeah, it broadens your horizons. I mean, that's, I know that's not maybe your, your main point, but tangential to your point. It broadens your horizons and in a sense sets you free, right? Because you're, you're pursuing the, the gifts that God has given you. You're pursuing the, ever, the perfection of those gifts in whatever it is you're doing, whatever frame you're doing. Yeah. And in that sense, like hired, fired, whatever, you're pursuing the excellence of the gifts that God has given to you and expanding yourself. I mean, um, yeah, the clock's going to hinder me here. I'll do it as quickly as I can. If you're a white-collar guy, start learning blue-collar stuff. If you're a blue-collar guy, start doing white-collar stuff. Be the well-rounded man. We can talk about that later in Proverbs. Um, but the, the quintessential biblical man is the warrior poet, is the scholar athlete. That's why in um, biblical literature, one isn't celebrated over the other, but both are required to be a whole man. So you're going to be gated or your, your um, talents, your skills are going to be gated toward more blue-collar line of work or white-collar line of work. What you want to do to flesh yourself out is be, be as balanced as you can. I mean, there's a reason why I became a pastor, and that's because I'm terrible with my hands. I break all kinds of projects at home that I'm supposed to fix, but it's one of the things I'm trying to do because a well-rounded man is a man who can be a warrior and a poet, who can be blue-collar and white-collar. He's called to one primarily. But seek and pursue excellence and skill in that well-roundedness, being, an, in, uh, being a scholar and an athlete. That's why in Western culture we held that up for a while. Remember, we demanded this of our university athletes, that they be scholars and athletes, they're held up as this peak and epitome of here's what young uh, men are and young men are supposed to be. Boy, has that fallen along with everything else. But it doesn't mean that the foundation that lays there uh, has changed. It's the same. So pursue those things, pursue excellence and pursue skill. You'll never be bored. The Lord be with you.